The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. And as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, a very dangerous situation is unfolding out here in Southeast Asia that I don't think is getting the attention worldwide that it warrants. Certainly, not a lot outside of Southeast Asia, but we've been covering this quite a bit. But again, I haven't seen it too much elsewhere. This is the incident that occurred on Saturday, August 5th, when a Chinese Coast Guard cutter opened fire on a Philippine naval vessel using a water cannon. So again, not opening fire in terms of using ammunition, but a high-powered water cannon. The Philippine naval vessel, and this was a small little unarmed vessel, was trying to provide provisions to a World War II warship that is sitting on top of a bunch of coral, a shoal in the South China Sea. Now, all of this to people outside of Asia, it sounds ridiculous. How is it that there are hundreds of vessels now in the South China Sea from the United States, from China, the Philippines, Japan, Australia, Canada. Germany is even planning on sending vessels. The French have sent vessels. I mean, the list of countries that are now active in the South China Sea, all fighting over a pile of coral and rocks. But it all comes down to what China has done in one sense, which is this nine-dash line. This is the territorial claims that China's made, which is a huge amount of territory. And a lot of countries in the region, the Philippines in particular, are very unhappy with this, Vietnam being another one that's unhappy with these territorial claims. And what's playing out now in the South China Sea is this confrontation over this hunk of coral with a World War II-era decrepit warship that's sitting, you know, atop of it. And here's the issue, though. And this is what should keep everybody up at night. The United States is a treaty ally of the Philippines and has said repeatedly since this August 5th incident that Coast Guard interactions do come under the Mutual Defense Treaty. So we are now moving closer in terms of a potential confrontation between the Chinese and the Americans than I've seen in a lot of instances because the U.S. Navy is watching this very carefully. The Philippines Navy has said it is going to try again in the next few weeks to resupply this World War II ship known as the Sierra Madre. And all weekend, Cobus, the tensions ratcheted up on both sides, with the Philippines and the Chinese both issuing warnings to the others, the Philippines telling Chinese that they should, quote, behave, and then the Chinese coming back and saying, Manila should not misjudge China's strategic patience or try to exploit it. Beijing has both the determination and capacity to protect its territorial waters. I mean, those are not the kind of words you want to hear right now, but it is a very dangerous situation that I think more people should be paying attention to. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound good. You know, I was wondering, in, you know, you're back in Vietnam now. How is all of this playing in Vietnam, considering that they also have these territorial claims similar to the Philippines? Well, there are few issues that are as sensitive to the Vietnamese as the island's issues in the South China Sea, or the East Vietnam Sea, as they call it here in Vietnam, or the West Philippine Sea, as they call it in the Philippines. Everybody's got a name for their territorial acquisition there or their territorial claim there. So this is an issue that is heavily, heavily censored by the Vietnamese government. They have a narrative on it, but at the same time, they don't really need to censor this information the way that they do, simply because just as in China, when it comes down to these territorial issues, everybody's aligned. There is no disagreement. There's no dispute. There's no dissent on this issue. 100% of the population in Vietnam believes that their territorial claims in the South China Sea, East Vietnam Sea, are legitimate. And so there's not a lot of debate and discussion. I think there's a lot of concern, though, among key Vietnamese stakeholders and people throughout this region, that this situation gets out of control. And that is the concern. Well, of course, I mean, the kind of military naval aspect of that alone is huge. But then also, 
you know, China is the key trading partner for all of the countries in this region. You know, so like even as the Philippines is picking this huge fight with China or having a fight picked with it by China, you know, President Marcos Jr. has also recently signed a whole bunch of trade and cooperation deals with China that are really core to the Philippine economy. You know, and in a lot of ways, all of this, like despite all of these kind of new strategic kind of closer connections between the US and the Philippines and other Western powers in the Philippines and Japan and India increasingly, these powers aren't necessarily able or, you know, willing to replace China economically in the Philippines' balance sheet, you know. So they're kind of stuck in kind of contradictory position. There's two levels of the dynamics here that are at play, is that on the one hand, politically, there is very little alignment among Southeast Asian countries as it comes to China. Economically, a totally different story. As you've pointed out, the Chinese are the largest trading country for most Southeast Asian countries. You know, we shouldn't necessarily dismiss the Americans here. They are quite a big trading power in this part of the world. But the Americans have provided something that's very important, which is the protection in the South China Sea of the freedom of navigation. This has been a public good for the past 50 years that has allowed a lot of these countries to develop economically. Because they're not spending 4, 5, 6% of their GDPs on security, they've been allowed to focus on trade. Absent the United States in this part of the world, you would see a lot of these countries ramping up their military budgets and have a lot less for infrastructure development, education, social development, and economic growth. So there is a trade-off here. A lot of the countries in this region do appreciate the American role in providing some kind of buffer between the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Chinese, the Filipinos, the Vietnamese. And it's hard to explain this to people. World War II in this part of the world isn't fully settled. A lot of these island disputes date back to the Second World War, and certainly those relating to Japan and the Senkaku Diaoyutai Islands, so for example. So we have a lot of tension that rides above the economic relationships. At the same time this weekend, Kobus, it was very interesting to watch Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi do a tour of the region that didn't really seem to have any agenda attached to it. So he went to Malaysia, he went to Singapore, and he went to Cambodia, and it just felt like a feel-good relationship-building tour. But I think these are very important diplomatic exercises that Wang was doing in order to bolster his friendships, given the tensions that are now unfolding with the Americans, Filipinos, and with the Chinese. So some fascinating diplomacy that's unfolding here. Again, I think it explains in part why this region in particular has become a focal point of Chinese diplomacy in many respects at the expense of other parts of the world like Africa. And that's something that I don't know if many people in places like Africa fully appreciate. Yeah, I think, you know, at the moment, China's approach seems to be very focused on its immediate neighborhood, particularly on its immediate borders and the states surrounding it. And there, it's not only shoring them up politically and try to, as much as they can, trying to reach out diplomatically to them, but also through building these kind of multimodal logistics corridors through Southeast Asia, connecting to different parts of Southeast Asia, connecting to the Indian Ocean via Pakistan, and like, you know, also connecting to Central Asia in order to bypass larger shipping and supply choke points that many Chinese strategists fear could be cut off in the occasion of a, a conflict with the US. So there's all of this trade and, you know, very nitty-gritty kind of economic and trade and supply kind of like thinking that's un also underlying a whole narrative of us in our neighborhood, we've always been together, we've always been friends forever, kind of ironclad brother kind of narrative that's also being put out through diplomatic engagement. Well, it's great that you brought up the question of Central Asia, because again, just as here in Southeast Asia, that is indeed, as you pointed out, a major priority for the Chinese. But Xi Jinping in particular has an affinity for Central Asia. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. Of course, that was an initiative that he announced in 2013 in Kazakhstan, in Central Asia. Earlier this year, she hosted in Xi'an, a summit of the C plus C5, that's China plus the five Central Asian states. Just for our discussion today, let me say those states so we can put them on the record so everybody knows what we're talking about. That's Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. Those are the five Central Asian states. And when you look at the map, you're going to see 
why these states are so incredibly important to the Chinese and why it makes sense for Xi to focus disproportionate attention on Central Asia, given the fact that it is really the only part of China's periphery that the United States military does not have a strong presence. So when you look at that encirclement of China that Xi has openly expressed concern about, there is a gaping hole in Central Asia. Also, Central Asia borders Xinjiang, which is a particularly sensitive issue for the Chinese. And Cobus, as you pointed out, these new forms of multimodal transportation, rail, trucking, all of this together is forming a new trade routes that are becoming increasingly important geopolitically for the Chinese, especially in the context of China's increasingly close relationship with Russia. So we thought that it would be very important today for us to dive into China's Central Asia relations. And there's really no better person to do that than Raffaello Pantucci, who is a senior associate fellow at Britain's Royal United Services Institute and a visiting senior fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. He's also the co-author of Sinostan, China's Inadvertent Empire. Copas and I had a chance to speak with him earlier this week. Let's take a listen to our discussion with Raffaello Pantucci. Raffaello Pantucci, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to finally have you on the program. Well, Eric, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to this. It's been a while since we've had a chance to talk about China-Central Asia relations, and that's really our big mistake because Central Asia is emerging as one of the more important, if not the most important, aspects of Xi Jinping's foreign policy agenda You wrote earlier that Central Asia has always held an important place in Chinese thinking, and specifically in Xi Jinping's tenure as president, it's also played an especially important role. Let's start maybe there and explain to us why Central Asia and the five countries there are so important to China. So there's a number of different reasons. And, you know, you could delve deep into history if you wanted to, to really understand it. But I think, look, to simplify I think the key in some ways to understanding China's concerns with Central Asia lie in the part of China that shares a border with Central Asia, which is Xinjiang. And Xinjiang is a part of China which has, at its kind of heart, this ethnic clash between an increasingly minority Uyghur community that live out there, which, depending on whose numbers you look at, is somewhere in the region of 10 million or so people, and an increasingly majority Han population, and then a whole smattering of other minorities that live out there. And this Uyghur community has been one that has long had a very tense relationship with the Chinese state, which has spilled into violence at various moments of inter-ethnic conflict. And this inter-ethnic conflict has had links across the border because, you know, while we look at a map, and we see a very clean border between China and the region. In fact, of course, for the communities that live on the ground, that border isn't the same thing. And Uyghurs are actually very present in parts of Central Asia as well. So in, in Kazakhstan, in Uzbekistan, you've got quite a large Uyghur diaspora. Also some in Kyrgyzstan, less in Turkmenistan, Tajikistan. And then similarly within China, you've got quite large diaspora communities of Central Asia. So there's almost a million ethnic Kazakhs that live out in Xinjiang. There's a uh, few, I don't know what the numbers are of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe of Tajiks and Kyrgyz as well. They kind of live within China, but ethnically from the other side of the border. And so this means that China's always had a very close tie to this region that has led to sort of violence between the communities that has kind of spilled back and forth across this border. So from China's perspective, controlling this border has been really important in terms of trying to control Xinjiang and trying to control the whole country. So that's on the one hand why it's of great concern. On the other side of the coin, you know, China sees the answer to long-term stability in Xinjiang as being through prosperity. You know, and this is a, a modicum, a kind of a logic that you can apply to lots of other parts of the world where China looks. You know, they think, you know, if everyone's economically prosperous, then they won't rebel against the state. But to bring that prosperity to Xinjiang, you're going to have to develop not only the region, but actually the regions around it. Because Xinjiang is as landlocked in many ways as the Central Asian countries that it shares a border with. So from China's perspective, trying to stabilize and make Xinjiang prosperous and strong and a part of China, and Xinjiang is worth remembering, you know, accounts for a sixth of China's landmass, you know, you have to basically have some sort of a stable region around it that China has good relationships with that is able to be prosperous and help bring that stability ultimately to help stabilize uh, Xinjiang at home. So obviously, you know, central to a lot of these calculations is Afghanistan. And, you know, there's also these very large mineral deposits in Afghanistan, like large lithium deposits. So I was wondering, since the withdrawal of U.S. troops, how has China-Afghanistan relations, you know, evolved? 
It's interesting because, I mean, in many ways, it's continued on as it had under the Republic government in the sense that, you know, we have a government in, you know, the Taliban authorities that took over. You know, they took over and they immediately, and they had actually before the sort of collapse, been trying to cultivate relationships with the Chinese. And the Chinese had conversely trying to cultivate relationships with them. The Chinese have always played a kind of hedging game in Afghanistan, you know, knowing the kind of chaos that exists there. And knowing that they share a direct border with the country, they've always seen it as a place that they need to at least have some sort of a, a functioning relationship with. And this has kind of grown and shrunk over the years. It used to be that they're very dependent on Pakistan for that relationship. But over time, they developed a direct relationship with the Taliban themselves. And in the run up to the Taliban takeover in August 21, you may remember that Mullah Baradar made a very prominent visit to Tianjin and had a meeting with Wang Yi. Uh, you know, and this was kind of one of the big eventful meetings that happened. I think it was in July of 21, shortly before uh, Kabul fell. And this is kind of an indicator, I think, of China saying, you know, we're continuing, we'll engage with you if you should, you know, whatever position you end up in, in Kabul. The fact they took over them and that China could, you know, spill and do that. And, but what's interesting, actually, is that what we've seen since then is actually the Chinese state has been quite hesitant in funny ways. They kept their embassy open throughout the takeover. And in the early days, we saw a certain amount of engagement by Chinese companies, but actually a lot of the engagement is really happening in the Chinese private sector, where you had an awful lot of Chinese basically, you know, have-a-go entrepreneurs from random parts of China who noticed that there's this country right across the border, which is very, you know, virgin in terms of territory that can be mined for lithium, but also gold, also copper, also zinc, also lots of other sort of minerals and opportunities. There's a big agri sector. There's actually quite a big population, 30 or so million people. You know, so you've got lots of opportunities there. And it's a country that used to be very unstable with lots of violence. And now it's very stable <laughs> because oddly the Taliban taking over, they kind of won the civil war. And so basically you've ended up in a situation where you've actually got much lower levels of violence. And so for Chinese entrepreneurs who, as I think you both know from your work in looking in other parts of the development, are quite scrappy adventurers. And they're quite willing to go to these sorts of difficult environments, kind of have a go. And so we saw a big flood of Chinese private businessmen basically going in to Afghanistan, and that's continued. But what's interesting is the Chinese state itself has been a bit more hesitant. So big state-owned firms, state-directed firms. There was two big projects there. There's a big project in Messinac, which was signed back in 2007 for a huge copper mine. There was signed between MCC, Jiangxi Copper, and the Afghan state, and it hasn't proceeded at all. The contract was actually rolled over by the Taliban government. They said, yes, we continue to have it to the Chinese firms, but they haven't really done anything with the project. And then up in the north, a CNPC subsidiary had actually won a contract to do some oil projects there, which is kind of an extension of the projects that CNPC was doing across the border in Turkmenistan. And CNPC recently restarted that project. The Taliban government rolled over the contract again. They renegotiated a bit, signed it, and it's actually started producing oil up in the north. And so those are the two big projects that we've seen actually sort of continue forwards. There's been a lot of discussion on the lithium side and on some of the other minerals that exist in Afghanistan. And you know, there's, everyone points to this famous survey that was done by the U.S. Geological Survey in the, during the Republic government, which concluded that, you know, within Afghanistan, there was, you know, a trillion dollars worth of minerals that could be mined. And a substantial part of that was lithium. You know, the country would become the Saudi Arabia of lithium. But the truth is, we haven't seen those big deals come through yet. We've had a couple of Chinese companies whose names are unclear. And if we go back and look at when the Americans were, you know, in command and were in control in Afghanistan, they were supporting the government under the Republic. They commissioned a survey and, you know, there was discussion of Afghanistan becoming, you know, the Saudi Arabia of lithium. But if we look at the actual things that have happened in lithium, so it's been quite limited. There's been a lot of individual Chinese kind of operators who've gone into Afghanistan and tried to take advantage of some of the lithium deposits because some of them are very close to the surface. And some you can actually extract using pretty rudimentary methods. And, you know, in some cases, we've had some funny stories. There was a guy who was arrested trying to cross the border into Pakistan with, you know, I think it was a thousand tons of rock, which contained lithium in it. And he was trying to, you know, smuggle it out of the country, not very discreetly. But others, you know, there's brine lithium, which essentially is salt water, which you kind of dry out and then can extract it. We've seen some of this small scale, but in terms of the big companies coming in, we haven't seen them really stepping in yet. There's been a couple of big meetings that the Taliban have kind of shouted about where they said, oh, this Chinese company came and promised us $10 billion for investment, but nothing has really come of that. And in that particular case, there was, you know, the name of the company that was advanced, it doesn't match any known Chinese companies. So it's not clear exactly who it was they were talking to. So there's been a lot of talk on the lithium side, but it hasn't quite materialized yet, but presumably it will, because, you know, there is a great opportunity there and the Taliban want to sell it and the Chinese have got lots of capability to sort of process the lithium at home to make it into batteries. 
Okay, so lithium aside, you talked about the question of stability and security in the post-U.S. era in Afghanistan. And while across the country, I think there's a lot of evidence to support that, the Chinese themselves have come under some pressure from terrorist groups like ISIS. In fact, there was a, an attack on a Chinese hotel in Kabul, and there's been threats from ISIS saying that they want to target Chinese companies and interests and people in Afghanistan because of the Chinese treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So talk to us a little bit about the severity of that challenge for the Chinese, and is that something that should be of concern to them? I mean, I think it is of concern, and of course it should be. You know, they've got nationals running around. And I, I think one of the issues that the Chinese embassy in Kabul has found itself with is that there is such a flood of these Chinese kind of have-a-go entrepreneurs that actually they started to lose track of them. And some of them started to get into trouble with the Taliban authorities. Some of them started to wander into quite dangerous parts of the country, completely unsupervised. So if you go look at the Chinese embassy website, it's very funny because you see sort of periodic warnings <laughs> by the embassy saying, if you're in the country, please report to us. Let us know where you are. Stop going to certain parts of the country because they're just sort of wandering into trouble potentially. But having said that, we've had kind of one direct attack on Chinese interests and one attack on the Taliban Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which coincided with a meeting that the Chinese were doing. And there was a sense that maybe this was the target, but it, it's not clear actually. So it's not it's really one instance where they were directly targeted and another attack done by the Islamic State group, ISKP where they used a Uyghur or who they claimed as a Uyghur bomber to blow himself up in a Shia mosque. And they claimed that, you know, this was revenge for the Taliban support of the Chinese and ultimately the Chinese support of Uyghur. So there is a clear threat there. And if you look at ISKP's material propaganda, they've been very loud about the threat towards China. But in some ways, what's interesting to me is they haven't done more and they haven't actually launched that many attacks. And in fact, when we look at that hotel attack, which happened late last year, it actually came on the back of an attack against the Pakistani representation in the country, the Russian embassy in the country, and an Iranian target in the country as well. And so it could be that at that time, actually, Islamic State was going after all the foreigners that are in the country. And the thing is that there are a lot of these Chinese entrepreneurs just sort of wandering around Afghanistan. And if Islamic State was really serious about targeting them, they're in quite a it's quite a target-rich environment in some ways. And so what's curious to me is they haven't actually, the threat hasn't materialized in some ways in the way that one might expect. And in fact, when you look at what the Chinese state talks about in terms of its security concerns, their fixation still does remain primarily on militant Uyghurs and the group that they refer to as ETIM, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, which they consider the kind of umbrella organization for Uyghur militants. You know, now there is some dispute about whether that organization exists or not, and that's a whole separate discussion. But we do know that there is a militant group called the Turkestan Islamic Party that does operate in Afghanistan. And we know this through videos that the organization itself has published. So, But that seems to be the one that the Chinese state and Chinese officials constantly refer to. They don't refer as much to ISIS. And certainly, as I say, there is a clear rhetorical threat from the group, but it hasn't translated into that much of a material threat yet. Over the last 10 years, the Uyghur situation in China has become a lot more prominent in Western discourse for a bunch of different reasons, no, not least, you know, new Cold War issues. In looking at the discourse as, you know, as it's emerging in the West, what do you feel kind of Western reporting or Western discussion is getting right and wrong about the situation there? Well, I mean, I haven't had an opportunity to go to Xinjiang for many years now, but I used to go fairly frequently. I think I first went in 2010, I believe it was. And I got to go back sort of every year or a couple of years until probably around 2017, I think was the last time. And it was palpable, frankly, how the security levels tightened up every time that I went. And the security was much more visible. And it was very clearly targeted at the Uyghur minority. You know, there's no doubt about that. And it became any more prominent in that direction as time went on. So, you know, I have... No reason to doubt the stories of what is happening out in the region in terms of the mass incarcerations, in terms of, you know, the sort of the pressure that is on that community and the sort of, you know, the control that is being exerted on them by the state. I don't doubt that that is, is what's happening. I think so in terms of that, in terms of the Western reporting is pretty accurate. I think what's interesting and I think doesn't get any coverage in the Western reporting is the existence of a militant diaspora that does exist. Now, I think the problem is the Chinese have a habit of conflating pretty much anything <laughs> under this umbrella. When in reality, there are militant groups that are affiliated with Al-Qaeda or have historically been affiliated with Al-Qaeda and with the Taliban. There are Uyghurs fighting alongside the Islamic State groups in Khorasan province in Afghanistan. They do exist, you know, and in, in Syria in particular, they're very active, in fact, uh, fighting alongside uh, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham in Idlib province. So 
you know, and, and I don't think that group gets much coverage and it does exist. What they haven't done in a very long time is target any Chinese. They seem to be just sort of part of this global jihadist movement, if you will. They're very focused at the moment on Syria and Afghanistan in particular. And we haven't seen much evidence of them actually trying to go attack Chinese interests. So maybe I think that's why they don't get sort of much attention, but they do exist and they are a reality. And, you know, the Chinese habit, however, is to conflate all of these into one sort of big problem. I think the other side of the story that maybe doesn't get coverage, uh, which I can, I think I can understand why, is the fact that there are two sides to China's effort to, you know, as they would put it, probably resolve the situation in Xinjiang. And on the one hand, it is this very tight security control being exerted down on the population. But on the other hand, there is very heavy economic investment as well. Because from a Chinese perspective, I think they're recognizing, you know, the security pressure will go so far. But in the longer term, if you really want this situation to be resolved, you need these people to kind of be on side. <laughs> and in a way, you know, making it prosperous, stable, that's a combination that they think will work. And I think this is how the Chinese state thinks everything kind of works at the end of the day. And so that heavy economic investment doesn't get maybe as much coverage. And there is a lot of money that's been poured into Xinjiang. Whether it's all getting out to the minority communities, I don't know. Certainly on previous business, it didn't seem to me to, that it was. But at the same time, there is a lot of money being spent out there. The amount of infrastructure that's been built in Xinjiang, the amount of money that's been poured into the cities there. All the rich coastal provinces have been given parts of Xinjiang to be responsible for. And cadres are sent out there. So there is a kind of big economic investment package that goes alongside this very heavy security grip. And I think maybe that doesn't get much coverage, frankly, outside. One of my professors in graduate school at Beidang, at Beijing University, he explained to me why Xinjiang and why the Chinese are doing what they're doing is so important in a more historical context. And I'd love to get your take on this. And he explained it to me, and again, he was Chinese, and he explained it to me, he said that, you know, there's these centrifugal forces, these forces that pull China apart, that the borders are constantly throughout history wanting to break away, whether it's Tibet, whether it's Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Inner Mongolia, pulling from the center. And traditionally, when the periphery of China was weak, then the emperor was weak. When the borders were strong and fortified, then the emperor was strong and fortified. So for Xi, the idea of bolstering economic development and security in a place like Xinjiang is just very much connected to that history of the Chinese emperors dating back millennia. And I'm just curious to think if there's a connection between what Xi is doing today and historically how China has dealt with breakaway regions in the past. I think there is certainly a kind of historical element to it, you know, and it's, it's certainly a fear always that, you know, it is these border regions that have led to turmoil that's, you know, ripped the things apart. But I think it's also a case that, you know, there's an important element of if the Chinese government, the CCP, is going to continue to control the country and be in power, then they have to demonstrate control over the whole country, right? <laughs> and they can't lose parts of it. And I think that's the biggest fear in some way. Which is true for every government, right? I mean, you, you couldn't have a neighborhood of Singapore break away. No. Well, Singapore's quite small, so I think they'd struggle to lose any more parts of it, frankly. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but still, it would be unacceptable there. It would be unacceptable in a country as large as China. But it's certainly true. It's, it's difficult. No country can sort of suffer from that. But I think in the Chinese context, you know, if we think about Xinjiang, it's a really big part and it's one that does have this community that is very different uh, to the rest of the country and you could see it kind of peeling apart. You know, I think if we're going to think about it in kind of bigger geopolitical, historical terms, it's always worth remembering, that, you know, I mean, kind of where I started, you know, Xinjiang is as much a kind of landlocked country as Central Asia is in some ways, right? And I'm not denying Xinjiang is part of China. It is. It's a region of China, right? But a province of China, you know, it's landlocked, and it, but it's really part of the Eurasian heartland, the Central Asian heartland. And if you go back and read your kind of geographical historians and you read Sir Halford Mackinder, the great British, you know, geographer, you know, this is the part of the world that he said, you know, he who controls this part of the world controls the world island you know, Eurasia and he who controls Eurasia controls the world. So, you know, I've certainly had a few <laughs> Chinese experts throw Mackinder at me now. It could be I'm a Brit. So, you know, they hear a British accent, Mackinder, there we go. But, you know, it's, uh, I, I think there's something to that sense of also this being an important region, not only because of sort of national control and justifying the sort of continuation of the party and, and historical fears about this pulling them apart, but also because if we control this, then we control something much wider, which is the kind of wider Eurasian heartland. And that is kind of really important geography in some ways to control. 
So one of the kind of interesting formations in the region is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which puts China together with Central Asian states, but also with India and Pakistan and, and a growing number of other possible kind of states to join. So I was wondering, you know, is in, in this... You know, India-China relations are, are very fraught at the moment, and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is one of the few, with the BRICS, is one of the few bodies where they are actually, where both of them are actually in the same body at the same time. So I was wondering how India-China relations are playing into this kind of Central Asian grouping in that case. So, I mean, you know, it's always interesting. The SCO, you know, without going too far into history... <laughs> was uh, created, you know, in the, in the kind of wake of the, the end of the Soviet Union. And it was basically initially something called the Shanghai Five, which is essentially about delineating China's borders with the new countries in that shared a border with when the Soviet Union fell apart, which was, you know, the Russian Federation and then, you know, three of the Central Asians, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And it kind of evolved in 2001, Uzbekistan joined. And it was always very focused on kind of this area. And every country had its own interests into why it joined, right? And so I think the Central Asian countries, and it's worth noting that Turkmenistan, of course, isn't a member, so it's not all of the Central Asians that within the SCO. They, you know, basically were new countries. They wanted to join anything. They were kind of up for it. And there we go. The Russians, I think, initially saw it as a way of trying to control China's activities in Central Asia. And the Chinese proposed it as kind of an umbrella organization that they just thought, well, let's have it. It'll soften our interactions with this region. But I think the key thing is here that every country kind of then continued forwards in with different views on how it should evolve. And I think what you did see over time is Russian concerns evolved as they realized that actually this wasn't the only vehicle that the Chinese were using or the only way that the Chinese were engaging with the region. They were doing all sorts of bilateral stuff as well. And, you know, the big story in some ways in Central Asia has been the rise of China. And I think the lower of Russia is too strong, but it's really the rise of China displacing Russia in a lot of contexts or moving in in, in a way that's sort of challenging, you know, a Russian kind of sphere of influence. Now, I say all of this by preface to talking about India because, you know, why ultimately did India and Pakistan join? Well, there is a story that I've heard from Chinese that essentially the reason for this happening was it was the Russians who encouraged the Indians to want to apply. <laughs> Uh, and said, why don't we bring them in? At the time, of course, the Chinese-Indian relation was a very different one. Much more positive, this sense of these two rising Asian giants, you know, that clearly they had different views of each other, but it was much less contentious relation than it was now. And of course, the Russia-India relationship is very strong and goes back a very long way and continues to be uh, quite strong. So initially, it was the Russians who kind of wanted to bring the Indians in. And the Chinese, or well, Chinese experts I've spoken to who look at the SCO, or Central Asian more broadly, have always said that this is an attempt by the Russians to try to dilute Chinese influence in the organization. But of course, if India is going to join, you know, the Chinese can't let the Indians in without letting the Pakistanis in because, you know, the China-Pakistan relationship is very close as well. And of course, India-Pakistan relationships are very complicated. So that's why they both kind of got shepherded in at the same time. What's interesting about India within this context is that the Indians and the Pakistanis have, broadly speaking, been pretty good about keeping their bilateral differences out of the SCO. You occasionally see them spilling over in meetings where, you know, one side will present a map or make some chippy comment that the other gets angry about. But actually, they're pretty good about keeping it outside and trying to keep kind of SCO as a separate space to their bilateral tensions. In terms of India into Central Asia, it really hasn't done much, I think, for them. Uh, I mean, the Indians have always talked a lot about doing more in Central Asia. And you can go back and look at all the kind of last three or four Indian leaders. They've all done a big tour of Central Asia where they visit all five of the countries. And, oh, India's coming. We've got a look east policy. We're going to come in. We've got all this great stuff. And then nothing really happens. The Indians do have relationships across the region. And the region, I think, would welcome, frankly, more Indian investment. And in fact, you know, Indian TV and Bollywood shows get a lot of coverage there. And, you know, I was talking to an Indian friend who visited Singapore recently and they went to Tashkent a few months ago and they were very amused to find young Uzbeks in a park when they went sort of for a walk in the park and running up to them to ask them about the latest, you know, goings on in Bollywood. <laughs> you know, and this guy's like quite surprised and speaking Russian and speaking Uzbek and these people were speaking kind of, you know, broken English but asking him about, you know, some movie star or whatever. So, you know, the kind of Indian soft power is quite substantial there but they haven't actually, you know, none of these big visits by the leaders have really followed up into any material activity of any great substance. That theory that you heard about Russia wanting to use India to dilute the influence of the SEO speaks a little bit to the longstanding suspicions between 
Russia, and China. And in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Cold War ending, China kept its distance from Central Asia, in part because it was still viewed as a traditional sphere of influence of Russia. That's now changed clearly in the past 10 years. But how do the Russians view, in your experience, China's really deep enthusiasm now for engaging the five countries in Central Asia and for the massive amounts of money that it's invested there and for the increasing priority that it has in Chinese foreign policy. You know, I think there's a degree to which the Russians are quite realistic about this situation, recognize there's a limit to what they can offer as competition. (laughs) They don't have as deep pockets, you know, and they don't need the raw materials in the same way, frankly. So there's a degree to which they're kind of They've, I think, resigned themselves to a reality of a situation. But at the same time, they clearly have, there have been moments when they were unhappy about it. But what's interesting is they often don't express this unhappiness directly to the Chinese. They do sometimes express it to the locals. But what's also, I think, worth remembering is that Russia still does have a very strong and important relationship with the five Central Asian countries. And I think the best example of this we can see recently is During the May Day parades this year, we saw all five of the Central Asian leaders go to Moscow and appear on the rostrum next to President Putin. And this is very clearly something the Russians had pushed for. And if you go back and look over the past year and a bit since the invasion of Ukraine, the Russians have done a lot of, put a lot of effort and a lot of sort of time in going around and visiting the region and engaging with the region. President Putin visited all five of the countries over the space of a year, which he hadn't done in a really long time, if ever, to be honest with you, you know. So they really put a lot of effort in because they wanted to try to cultivate these relationships and they recognized they let them atrophy maybe a bit too much. And in a way, I would say this probably wasn't so much about China as it was really about the West uh, and about their war in Ukraine and kind of bolstering up support in that direction. Instead, the Russians have always been a bit, you know, they've got a very different view of this region in some ways to the Chinese. The Chinese, I've always thought, see this in very transactional terms. You know, they see a region where there's an opportunity. They want that opportunity. They want to take advantage of it. They have some security concerns, but they're quite narrow and they're often focused on Uyghur militants or border threats. But, you know, the Russians, on the other hand, see this as part of their kind of family in a way. <laughs> they see themselves as a kind of part of familias for the region that is going to, you know, look at, you know, need to help these little Central Asian countries. You know, when Kabul fell, for example, to the Taliban, you know, it wasn't the Chinese that rushed it with security support. It was the Russians, you know, it was Russians that suddenly did joint training exercises with all the border countries. They rushed through arms sales across the region. You know, they really lean in to sort of help, try to help the region. So they've still got that approach. The Chinese do not see it in the same way. They see it much more. We have our border. These are our neighbors. We will trade with them. We want to do more trade with them. We will take advantage. We will do more stuff here. Uh, this is a great opportunity for us. But they don't feel the same kind of ownership. And so that division is, I think, important in some ways that probably assuages some of Russia's concerns because they recognize that, you know, notwithstanding the fact China has clearly become increasingly the most consequential power on the ground, Russia still does have a lot of cards to play there. And the region still wants Russia to play those cards in some ways as well. So you mentioned the Ukraine crisis, and I've seen some headlines over the last while, kind of hot takes in various publications that China is using the Ukraine crisis with Russia being distracted and weakened as a way to increase the influence in Central Asia. So I was wondering what you make of that kind of framing of the situation and also just broader, you know, how you see the Ukraine crisis impacting on China's calculations in the region. I personally think these views are overstated because my sense is that, you know, the China-Russia relationship and the China-Central Asia relationship has a much longer history, frankly. And in some ways, you know, how Ukraine's played out, as far as I can tell, is it hasn't really done much, frankly. The one that, you know, I've been very lucky this year and I've been out to the region quite a lot. So I've been to all five of the countries at least once, in some cases twice. And so I've been looking at a lot of this question. And what's striking to me is if you look at the data, the trade, the economics, the investment, they've all been increasing pretty steadily over the past couple of years. And they're basically picking, it's kind of the same rate that they were pre-invasion. And the big dip in China-Central Asia relations was COVID-19 and the pandemic, which really closed the borders. And in some ways, what we're seeing now is a pickup from that rather than anything to do with the war in Ukraine. What's interesting since the invasion of Ukraine is that we've seen the Russians have been trying to lean back into Central Asia, but also interesting, the Central Asians have been quite actively calling on the Chinese as well. (laughs) They've been trying to cultivate more of a relationship there because they want to have options. They don't want to be tied to one or the other. And the West has been an option they've always wanted, but it's always 
a bit, it's a difficult one for them, frankly, because it's so far away. And, you know, these are two giant countries they share long borders with. So what's changed within that is that you can see that within Central Asia, there is, the Russians are putting more effort in. The Central Asians are hesitant. And at a public level, they're very hesitant. If you look at public views towards Russia, they've changed actually quite a lot since the invasion. There's a lot of negative sentiment towards Moscow in Central Asia, which there didn't used to be, actually. Uh, Russia was seen quite positively. Moscow is the big city they want to go to, right? If you're a young uh, region, that's kind of where the big opportunities are. So that's changed a bit, but that's really about the Russia-Central Asia relationship. The China one, it's kind of just picked up as before. You know, we've seen China pushing more, but in some ways, this was what was going on previously as well. You know, there was always a story of China's growth and you got to go back to, you know, the end of the Soviet Union to see how China's relationships have sort of gone on a basically upward gradient from then onwards. And that's just continuing. And it's just now, you know, 30 plus years on from that moment, we are at quite a high point and it's continuing to go up. And that's really the story. And in a way, the invasion of Ukraine has been a kind of blip along that, but it's a blip that seems to be having more of an impact on the relationship with Russia really than the relationship with China, which has just kind of continued on the upward trajectory that it was going on before. Now, when we think of Central Asia in strictly geopolitical terms, as you've been talking about with Russia and China and whatnot, the United States does come into play here as well. And so when we look at the map of U.S. security alliances and partnerships that Xi Jinping himself has fretted openly that he feels encircled by, uh, there is a gaping hole in that map. And that map faces the western border towards Central Asia, where the United States does not have a security presence or any treaty allies or all of the things that it has with the Indians, the Australians, the Filipinos, the Japanese and Koreans. So how does Central Asia play into this matrix of the U.S.-China competition, because it seems to me that the Chinese see the opportunity to import oil over land as a way to offset the risk in the Straits of Malacca. It also sees that this is a part of the world where the United States will never have a large and aggressive and formidable military presence. How does Central Asia play into the U.S.-China competition? So you are correct that there are no major U.S. bases in Central Asia. There did used to be, it's worth noting. There was one in Uzbekistan, uh, right, during the... There was one in K2, Kashikhanabad, yeah. and then there was also one over in uh, Kyrgyzstan, in Manas. There's a big air bases, which were used basically during the war in Afghanistan as a kind of, you know, way station for products going in and out. But having said that, no bases, that doesn't mean there's no relationship. <laughs> The Americans do do some exercises with some of the local forces, and they do actually spend quite a lot of money on security interests in the region. So along the border, the Tajik-Afghan border, the U.S. has done quite a lot, invested quite a lot into Tajik security forces. They've done some joint exercises with some Uzbek forces, with Kazakh forces. Uh, with Turkmenistan, it's very difficult to know exactly what's going on. It's a very closed and opaque country. But, you know, with all the others, you can, there is some security activity that happens there. Afghanistan, of course, with, you know, the Taliban takeover there, of course, is none. <laughs> but there is some sort of limited engagement. What's interesting to me is that there's a very high level of paranoia in Beijing towards any security activity that you see by the Americans in this context. And in Central Asia, I think they seem to have rationalized. And in some ways, I think the Central Asians probably feel more pressure from Moscow in terms of doing things with NATO or with the United States than they do from China, frankly speaking, because of the war in Ukraine and the sort of consequences of because a lot of these countries used to be, there's there's kind of a, a NATO, I don't know what the term would be, a NATO project, a NATO effort called the Partnership for Peace Program, which is about kind of working with local partners, trying to train them up to certain capability. You know, and, and the Kazakhs have contributed forces to American operations around the world, certainly in Afghanistan, I believe even into Iraq. You know, so there has been some security engagement between the US and these countries, and there does continue to be, but certainly nowhere near as much as you see in terms of with India, or even actually in some ways with Pakistan. But there is a lot of Chinese paranoia towards that. Um, but what's interesting in some ways is that I think that within uh, Central Asia, the China-US clash is one that they're all very worried about, and you could see echoing on the ground. But actually, interestingly, it doesn't seem to be impacting things in the same way as I think it does in other contexts. So I think ultimately, both China, you know, certainly the Chinese and the Russians, see that they've got quite a strong level of influence, <laughs> you know, big levers they can pull with the locals, uh, which they will continue to. And the West will always talk about wanting to engage with Central Asia and does engage with Central Asia, but ultimately it can't ever really compete in the same way because of the realities of geography. 
And from the perspective of Central Asian governments, how are these kind of key Central Asian governments, how are their different approaches to dealing with China? Like, are they trying to present a, a united front or do you see kind of individual countries, you know, having quite different approaches to dealing with China? I think they all have different relationships. I think they would all like to say that they have their own sort of, you know, they're controlling this. But I think the reality is, of course, different in each case. It's, we've been talking about the region as sort of a mass, which, of course, it is not. It's five individual nations uh, with different histories and, well, very similar histories, actually, but different, you know, the seas and cultures and different economic realities on the ground. And so when we're looking at the Kazakhs and the Uzbeks, these are, you know, quite wealthy countries in some ways with large populations. In the Kazakh case, huge mineral resources that they can sell to the neighbors, but also to Europe and elsewhere. So the Kazakhs have always had a very advanced relationship with the Chinese. Current leader, Mr. Tokayev, from that served in, uh, you know, in, in Beijing, served also here in Singapore, speaks very fluent Mandarin, is clearly a China kind of knowledgeable guy. And so he's always had that kind of uh, a relationship. But Kazakhstan's had kind of the longest history in some ways of a relationship with the region. It's always been the biggest and the richest of the region. So it's been kind of talking to the Chinese in a very serious way for a long time. And so their relation in some ways is, you know, more middle power with big power or, you know, two peer powers, if you will. Now, the Uzbeks, since the passing of their first leader, Mr. Karimov, have kind of managed to edge their relationship in the same direction. The fact that they don't share a direct border with China means that their kind of border, their relationship is slightly different. They don't have the same kind of border issues that the Kazakhs and the Chinese do, you know, in terms of security, also in terms of trade. And the Uzbeks have kind of been much more careful about letting different people into their economies and sort of trying to create a web of partners rather than just a single partner. Because the Kazakhs have kind of set themselves up in some ways in kind of these mono, uh, these very strong relationships in specific directions, whereas the Uzbeks have tried and managed to maintain a bit more of a kind of balance. But recently, they really opened up to China quite a lot, frankly. Um, if instead we look at the Kyrgyz and the Tajiks, these are very poor countries and very underdeveloped in many ways. And so in some ways, they're much more, they're requesters, they're demandeurs, they want investment, they need aid, they need support, they need development. And so for them, the relationship with China is, of course, very different. They're looking to try to get more, you know, BRI type loans to help them, you know, develop their infrastructures. And then if we look at ultimately, Turkmen, Turkmenistan is a very closed country that has a lot of gas, you know, world's, I can't remember what it is, fourth largest or something, massive gas reserves uh, that frankly they sell at the moment mostly to the Chinese because the Chinese were the ones that were willing to basically sign the contracts and do the deals on the terms that the Turkmen wanted. And there, it is kind of a very rich family that controls that country. And they don't have the border issues that some of the other Central Asians do. So they can kind of control the relationship in the same way. And certainly talking to Chinese who like that they find it as difficult, frankly, to deal with the Turkmen authorities as lots of other people do, just because it is a very difficult and closed government to engage with and find out exactly what's going on. But from my understanding, I don't know that the Chinese have any greater insight than others, even though the Chinese are clearly one of the biggest sources of income for the government in that country. So each of these, as you can see, is slightly different and has, as a result, slightly different relationship with Beijing. They haven't really come together to create a kind of unified response, in part because they do have such different approaches and different links. But they have got a C5 plus China format that we saw recently in a host of big summit in, in Xi'an, where the five leaders went to Xi'an and met with President Xi and, you know, were fated in very grand terms. Uh, President Xi is coming back to visit to do, a, he did a similar thing in summer council shortly before that. So there is that kind of sense of engagement, but I don't get a sense from these engagements that the region's talking as one in their relationship with China, because ultimately they have got very different sorts of relationships with Beijing. You've taken us on a very vast journey of the region and all the different politics of it. You mentioned the summit that she had in Xi'an earlier this year and that he's going back. And when we look in the next year and a half out, how do you see Central Asia playing in the matrix of Chinese foreign policy? Is it going to become more important, more or less the same, or will it diminish? I think it's just going to continue in some ways. But I think what's interesting to me is how Central Asia is so often the place where China tries things first in sort of foreign policy terms. You know, the Shanghai Corporation Organization, that's the first kind of international multilateral organization with kind of a security component in it that China decided to participate in the world stage and, and was very much a product of China. You know, the name, the Shanghai <laughs> Corporation Organization gives an indication of China's willingness to put a stamp on it. If we look at some of the earliest pipelines that they did, it was in, in Kazakhstan, you know. If we look at some of the first sort of cross-border 
deals and security relationships they really were in this region. Some of the first big training exercises with foreign militaries was in this region and also with the Russians. So this region's got a, you know, post-COVID, the first area that Xi Jinping visited was in Central Asia. Uh, you know, the big Xi'an summit was kind of the first big one. So there's lots of things that you can see where they do things in Central Asia before then you see them maybe approach trying these ideas in other sort of contexts as well. And I think that's partially because it's a safe space for China. You know, they know that they've got a fairly, you know, receptive set of governments there that wants to engage with them very much on the terms that they like and they want, and they're quite happy with that. Um, and they've got good relationships with them. So I think we'll continue to see that going forwards. And I think it, it is a relationship that's only going to strengthen uh, more and more and more going forwards. Does that have kind of wider global geopolitical considerations? I mean, difficult to tell. I think if you're a Eurasian power, it might do, because <laughs> I'm a great believer in Eurasian geopolitics and controlling this area being significant for control of the wider landmass. But I think beyond that, it is going to be interesting to see. In some ways, what, what I worry about most is the fact that this is a region that has historically also generated instability that has wider global consequences. The terrible terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001 is, of course, the most prominent example of this, but you can see other instances where trouble from this part of the world has started showing up elsewhere. And the problem in some ways for me is that, you know, going forwards, if China becomes the kind of most consequential power on the ground, what they have not demonstrated is an interest in trying to resolve issues on the ground. And this is a region that does have issues and problems. You know, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan have had a shooting war in the last year in terms of their border spats, and they both have been strengthening those borders again. It's possible that's going to spill over again. Afghanistan, at the moment, it seems relatively stable-ish under the Taliban, but who knows how long that will survive. You know, we had unprecedented sort of civil unrest in both Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan in the last year and a half uh, that no one was expecting. Um, so there's a lot of potential stability here. And what worries me is that, you know, if the region can't fix it, the Russians are clearly now distracted by Ukraine, and I think that's going to precipitate all sorts of other problems for Moscow. Who's then going to try to deal with some of these issues when they come up in Central Asia? And I just don't see China doing that because China will say, well, you will resolve it and we will do trade with you. And in some ways, that's, that, well, that was kind of one of the premises of the book, Sinostan, was this idea that China is becoming the most consequential power in this part of the world, but it's not interested in then doing a lot of things which should follow from that power and influence, which is, you know, helping broker peace between the various sides or trying to stabilize the situation in some way or try to get people to sit down and talk about resolving issues. Instead, they'll be much more kind of observant and say, okay, you're going to have trouble there. Okay, you resolve it and then you tell us and we'll trade with whoever is in charge, you know? And the region maybe will be happy with that because, you know, force came out. But violence, as I say, in this region has a habit of spreading. And that is quite worrying to me in a way that we, if we see that as the kind of long-term scenario. Okay. Raffaello Pantucci is a senior associate fellow at Britain's Royal United Services Institute and a visiting fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore, and also the co-author of the book Sinostan, China's Inadvertent Empire. I'm going to put a link to the book in the show notes. Raffaello, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, what's the best way for them to connect with you, presumably on this new social network thing called X? <laughs> I'm very active on that. I have a couple of accounts. One is my own Raf Pantucci, and then my other one, I have an account called China in Eurasia, which does what it says on the tin and is really about looking at China in Central Asia and the kind of wider Eurasian region. China Eurasia is the account. So if you look at those two, and then I have my own website, which you can find through links on those to get to it. Well, we'll put links to everything in the show notes. Once again, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a, a fascinating discussion. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invitation. Kobus, as an African scholar, your ears must have perked up when you heard Raffaello there at the end say, that Central Asia is the place where the Chinese go to test out a lot of the new policies, do things that they can't do in other parts of the world, because that is something that you and I have been saying about Africa for more than a decade. And at the same time, too, where he said that, you know, if there are problems, we walk away, we don't really fix it too much. That can also be said about the Chinese in Africa as well. So interesting parallels to what the Chinese are doing in Central Asia and what they're doing in Africa and why it is so important 
that if you are an Africanist or a Central American scholar or a South Asian scholar following China, you have to look at what the different regions are doing because there are some fascinating parallels. Yeah, absolutely. And Africa and Central Asia have, even though they're super different in many ways, they have some overlaps in the sense that they both have this kind of combination of huge potential opportunities, including, you know, vast mineral resources, you know, huge needs for all kinds of engagement, including like technological engagement, data network building, infrastructure building, etc, etc. So a lot of opportunities. And then at the same time, a really complicated set of politics, you know, difficult issues on the ground, like complications left and right, you know. So in that sense, like, they bring out, I think, both the the strengths of China, you know, in the sense of kind of having a large appetite for risk, all of these companies being willing to go into quite challenging environments to do all kinds of things. And then at the same time, they also, I think, bring out the kind of risk aversion in China, you know, kind of where the instinct is maybe not to get too involved. But when we talk about how China has lost interest in Africa over the past, say, five or six years, and we've seen a steady decline in economic engagement, in transactional engagement, yes, the trade numbers are higher, but relative to China's total trade, they're flat or going down. One of the areas where we're seeing what this engagement in a more positive context looks like is Central Asia. So again, the amount of time and attention that Xi is paying in terms of his own time and where he's traveling and inviting the leaders to Xi'an for the summits, the quantity and the size of the loans that are going there to develop some of the infrastructure is also impressive, things that you're just not seeing in parts of Africa. So again, I don't like to frame it as a zero-sum game, that is, if one region's losing, another one's winning, but it does in some way play out that way because, again, tension, budgets, time, Priorities are all limited. And so if you're not paying attention to one region, usually it's because you're paying attention to more regions like those around China in their near abroad, if you will. And that's where I see China's interest being much more concentrated today than what they were doing, say, 10 years ago when it was the Belt and Road, we can go everywhere, we can do anything. The near abroad now, whether it's in the South China Sea, Southeast Asia, or Central Asia, seems to be the big priority. Yeah, you know, China seems to have pulled its focus closer to home, you know, and obviously it also kind of overlaps with Xi Jinping's general obsession with security and, you know, his obsession particularly with integrating issues like resource security, food security, connectivity, and moving them past these kind of shipping choke points and other kind of structural barriers that China faces. So one can see there that what lies on the border or what lies close to China will kind of necessarily then get the most attention. At the same time, I think you know, an, another kind of overlap that Trafila was also pointing out in relation to places like Afghanistan and many places in Africa is that in both of those cases, these are societies that have not only been broken once, you know, kind of through colonialism or kind of empire building, but have been broken over and over and over, many, many times over. And which means that these societies have a lot of different issues, like a lot of different problems. And what you also get through that, that kind of like toxic combination that you also see in Afghanistan and in parts of Africa is that in places have been colonized and broken in that way and then have had successive kind of violent local governments and have gone through Western sanctions. That usually means that the combination of those three means that there's usually a complicated bunch of mafias in running different parts of the society, which also means that there's usually other problems like widespread poverty or like, you know, kind of unhappy different populations or, you know, etc., etc on top of a big lack of infrastructure. You know, so in that sense, a place like Sudan and a place like Afghanistan have these kind of overlaps, even though they're very different. And then, you know, after 20 years of like very hyped kind of American in Iraq and in Afghanistan have been saying that they will essentially try and rebuild these societies, that has largely not worked. You know, so I think after 20 years of that, I think the Chinese are like... You need to get what you want, but they're not necessarily kind of counting on themselves to make these more functioning societies, I think. And that means that there's this kind of limit to what they can do there or limit to their engagement there. You know, either you're willing to actually deal with these issues or you're not. And in, in, in largely China doesn't seem very willing to deal with them. Yeah, well, it's a topic that we're going to try and focus more attention on this year. Again, we've been negligent in not doing more on Central Asia, given the enormous importance this region has and the lessons 
that we can learn about Chinese foreign policy for other parts of the world as we've expanded on today. I mean, what a fascinating discussion. This is really the high point of our job is that we get to speak with people like Raffaello. And if you are interested in these topics, you get to then receive our newsletter every day. And the newsletter, we have a chat bot on our site, which is fascinating, which these discussions with experts like Raffaello help to make stronger. So all of our transcripts feed into these chat bots and you're getting these answers that are far more accurate in many respects than what you get out on the normal chat GPT or Google Bard. You can try that with your subscription. Also, just you're supporting the work of just a great team of journalists in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. If you'd like to subscribe, go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. If you're a student or a teacher, just email me, eric at chinaglobalsouth.com, and I'll send you a link for a 50% discount. Again, just for students and teachers, use your school email address when you send that to me. If you have a .edu address, if you don't, just let me know what school you're in, and we can go from there. So that'll do it for this edition of the China Global South podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Erica Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at chinaglobalsouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com.